1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 33. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or or, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Back in February, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and the whole discussion was around whether it's okay for a Christian to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol or not. And what we learned is it's actually a morally neutral issue. There is no right or no wrong. If I understand that an idol is nothing but a block of wood or a chiseled bit of stone, well, no, it's not a sin to eat meat that's been sacrificed to it. But... If in eating that meat, we in some way are recognising the validity of the idol or the God that it represents to which it was sacrificed, well, that's a different kettle of fish altogether. And so the principle we learned in chapter 8 is love limits liberty. Sure, we have the liberty to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, provided we're not recognising that that idol represents any kind of spiritual power or authority. But if by doing this it causes somebody else to fall into sin because they do recognise it as being real and they see me doing it and they go, oh, it must be okay to worship other gods because Michael's doing it. Well, no, it's not okay for me to eat it because love limits liberty. In Christ... We have certain freedoms, but we don't always exercise those freedoms because of how it might affect the other. 
And because here in St George, we don't really have a great propensity to idol worship, do we? Um, at least not in the true sense of the word. I mean, we might sort of think of things as idols, like, you know, sport can become an idol, or our family, or our farms, or cattle, or cars, or self-image, or health and fitness. All of these things can become idols of sorts, but not in the true sense of the word as an actual God that is worshipped. Um, and so a few months ago when we were studying this, we focused on how to apply this principle of love limits liberty to other morally neutral issues, such as working on a Sunday or drinking alcohol or how one dresses for church. Uh, in some places of the world, eating meat sacrificed to an idol is a live issue. It's something that they grapple with every day because it's so prominent in their culture and it was what they used to do before they became Christians. But in St George, not so much, at least not at the moment. But at that, the end of that message, I was asked two questions. Uh, so there's a head up, heads up for our visitors. Often we allow time for, okay, has anybody got any questions? So if anything pops to mind, just remember what it is and ask at the end. And if it's difficult, I'll get somebody else to answer it. Um, but at the end of that message, I was asked two questions. I didn't answer them that day, uh, not because I was trying to dodge them, but because I knew we were coming to chapter 10. And I knew that we'd be covering it when we got to chapter 10, and that's where we are today. So once again, we're considering idolatry and whether it's okay for a Christian to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. And at this point, you might be thinking, ah, well, I might just catch up on that couple of hours sleep that I missed out on last night because I don't think I really need to grapple with that issue very much. But you might just be surprised at how relevant this topic is becoming for us as a society. Okay, so the first question I was asked was about idols and demons. Right, back in chapter 8, we talked about how an idol is nothing. It's nothing but a block of wood or a piece of stone. There is only one God. But if that's the case, why is idolatry so evil? How come millions or even billions of people get sucked into it? And why does God hate it so much? Well, it's because while an idol is nothing but a physical block of wood or a chiseled bit of stone, those who sacrifice to it are entering into the worship of demons. In our modern society, tolerance is seen as the greatest of virtues. And we live in a society where you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as you don't expect anybody else to have to believe it. And so the default position of those who are not saved has become largely either what I'm going to call tolerant atheism or tolerant agnosticism, all right? So an atheist is someone who believes there is no God. Atheist meaning, A meaning no, theist, theo meaning God, no God. Uh, an agnostic believes, well, they don't know what they believe. They're not sure if there's a God or not. A meaning not. No, no, gnosis meaning knowledge, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God or not. Right? But they're tolerant about it to an extent. So as long, as long as they don't believe in God or don't know if they believe in a God, but they're happy for you to believe in a God, as long as you don't start putting your beliefs upon them, and as long as you don't tell people of other religions that they should believe in your God. 
And so it all becomes about tolerance rather than truth. And in our society, there is becoming an increasing move amongst some, and even within a few particular churches, towards multi-faith worship or universalism. Now, I'm sorry for all these big words. This is more big words already than what we normally use on a Sunday, but that's the length of them, and I can't shorten them. That's just the way they are. Um, and so, particularly in community settings, you will see liberal Christians joining together in worship alongside liberal Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, and whatever other religion takes your fancy, and they do this under the banner of interfaith worship. And this all springs up from various ideas of universalism. Universalism is the belief it doesn't matter which God you worship because they say we're all worshipping the same God, we just know him by a different name. And in the name of peace, unity and tolerance, people of different religions enter into the worship of these various gods as one. Now, does anybody here find that at all a little bit troubling? I hope you do. I hope you do find that troubling because there is only one true God, the Lord God Almighty, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He is the God who reveals himself to us in the scriptures. He even reveals his personal name to us, Yahweh, or some pronounce it as Jehovah. Um, any other God, a little g God, is not a God at all. What is it? It's Satan and his demons stealing worship away from the one true God who does deserve to be worshipped. And so anyone who worships another God, well, they're not worshipping a God at all. They're worshipping a demon. Anyone who worships Allah and claims that Muhammad is his prophet is worshipping a demon. Now, in some places, I would have just gotten the death penalty for saying that. Um, anyone who bows down to an idol is worshipping a demon. Anyone who makes up for themselves an image of a god of their own making is worshipping a demon. Um, that, by the way, is what I call modern-day idolatry. Do you know how to recognise modern-day idol modern idolatry? It, it usually begins with somebody prefaces it by, I like to think that God is like... And then they'll paint a picture for you of what they think God should be like. And usually it doesn't really fully represent the God who reveals himself in the scriptures, but it becomes a God entirely of their own making. It's how they think God should be. And this is just modern day idolatry. And what is idolatry? It's the worship of a made up God, which is demonic. There's nothing harmless about other religions. It's the worship of demons. And as disciples of Jesus, we give our full allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. Paul says you cannot drink the cup of the, the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I mean, this is serious stuff. God reveals himself as God truly is. And we are the body of Christ. We are the fellowship of the body of Christ. We are the fellowship of the blood of Christ. Therefore, we cannot participate in the fellowship of demons. Okay. Well, the second question I was then asked was about halal. 
Is halal food, um, is it okay for Christians to eat food that is halal? That's a tough question. Um, I actually had to do a fair bit of research to see, okay, what is halal food all about? Um, halal food and ingredients and produce, it, it's a relatively new phenomenon in Australia. It's been around for a little while, but it's just been growing and growing and growing. Why? Because the Islamic market is growing and growing and growing. The Islamic Council of Victoria says that there are over 400,000 Muslims in Australia. That's a pretty decent-sized food market. So what is halal? Well, that same council explains it like this. Halal is an Arabic word meaning lawful or permitted. Uh, in reference to food, it's the dietary standards as prescribed by the Quran. Um, the opposite of halal is haram, which means unlawful or prohibited. In general, every food is considered halal in Islam unless it's specifically prohibited by the Quran or the Hadith. Um, you've probably all heard of the Quran. It's their scriptures. Um, the Hadith is just a collection of sayings from supposedly from Muhammad. Now, the, by the official definition, halal foods have to meet two requirements. They have to be free from any component that Muslims are prohibited from eating under Sharia law. And secondly, it has to be processed or manufactured on equipment that's been cleansed according to Sharia law. And all foods are considered halal except for these. Um, things like alcoholic beverages and intoxicants, uh, non-halal animal fat, enzymes, gelatin, lecystine, if it's from human hair, lard, lipase, non-halal animal shortening, basically anything from a pig, unspecified meat broth, rennet, stock, tallow, carnivorous animals, so they can't eat birds of prey or certain carnivorous animals, and I'm not sure why anybody would want to anyway, um, or foods contaminated by any of the above products. Right? So when it comes to food, halal is that which Muslims are allowed to eat. Now, if they're living in an Islamic country under Sharia law, it would be generally pretty safe for them whenever they went to the shops for them to assume that all foods there were going to be halal. But in Australia, not so much. Right? So in Australia, halal has become a marketing tool. And so rather than needing to read through all of the lists of ingredients upon the product, um, some various products are now branding their food as being halal. So just as some foods have a brand of being gluten-free or nut-free or low GI so that it helps people to quickly recognise that it will meet their dietary needs, well, halal does the same thing. And so some common products that are now halal certified include Cadbury chocolate, which quite bizarrely includes Easter eggs. I'm not sure why any Muslims would want to be eating Easter eggs. Um, Sara Lee desserts and pastries, Steggles chicken tenders, Bega cheese, Vegemite, Weiss ice cream, and the list just goes on and on and on. Hundreds, if not thousands of products that you buy and use every day are now halal certified. Is there harm? in a Christian eating food that is halal? Well, no. Um, 
It's the same as other food. The only harm is that the companies who gain this certification do it for marketing purposes to increase their market share amongst those of Islamic faith. Well, fair enough, which of you farmers don't want to sell your product to people of other religions? I mean, most of the cattle produced here get chuffed off overseas. Many of them end up in other countries of other religions. Most of the grain produced gets chuffed off overseas and same thing happens there. So there's no problem there. But the point of concern is that the companies have to pay the Australian Federation of Islamic Councils or some other Islamic accrediting body to gain their certification. They can't just go, oh, here's our list of ingredients. Yep, we meet halal, we can put a sticker on it to say that it's halal. They actually have to get certification through one of these organisations and pay for it. And the money earned from that often gets used for the promotion of Islam. And so every time a company becomes halal certified, they are actually financially supporting the promotion of Islam. Now, that's for general foodstuffs. But when it comes to halal certified meat, that's a very different story. More and more, our meatworks are being accredited as being halal. And what does that mean? What that means is that the animals, when they are slaughtered, have to be killed by a Muslim. How's that for a job creation project, eh? I'm just not sure how they get around the religious um, discrimination laws for there. You know, when you're applying for a slaughterman, by the way, are you a Muslim? No, you can't have the job. Um, not sure. But the animal has to be facing towards Mecca when it's killed, and an Islamic prayer is recited over the animal. In English, it means something like, in the name of Allah, Allah is the greatest. Um, with my bad pronunciation in Arabic, it would be Bismillahi Allah Akbar. And so the animal is killed in the name of Allah. Can a Christian, in good conscience, eat that meat? Well, the answer is yes and no. After many years, we've come a full circle, um, and now we are part of an intentionally constructed multicultural and multi-faith society. There's nothing accidental about Australia becoming multicultural and multi-faith. I remember when I was a schoolboy was when I first started hearing about it, this, this push, we're going to become multicultural. Now, of course, culture is so tightly held and bound up with faith that for us to become multicultural, well, there's nothing wrong with that, we also have to become multi-faith, um, and there is a problem with that. And in this culture now, a Muslim is not allowed to eat an animal if it has been killed in any other name other than Allah. And so now we Christians have something to grapple with. We have to grapple with the question, can we eat an animal if it has been killed in the name of Allah? And all of a sudden, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, which has sort of become, had been a very distant, eh, not so relevant thing for us, all of a sudden becomes very relevant and very important for us to read and understand. So what does it say? Well, firstly, we have to understand that the Islamic slaughterman employed by the meatworks that your cattle probably go to and that your steak probably comes from that slaughterman enters into the worship of demons 
every time he kills an animal in the name of Allah. But the meat itself is not demonic. It only becomes spiritually tainted to us if we recognise it as representing worship to Allah. And so Paul gives some very practical advice. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, we have to realise the meat market in Corinth, a very pagan society, just about all the meat there would have been sacrificed to one god or another. And he's saying, don't raise any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. You know what this is telling me? God has not called us to become the halal police. God has given us all food to eat. And to us, it's clean. If you're shopping for meat at the local butcher, at the supermarket, just buy it and eat it. No worries. And the more meat, the better, particularly if I'm coming for dinner. Uh, we are not called to be a people who go on a quest to try and find evil. We're not called to be a people to go on a quest to try and find out. Now, tell me, Mr. Butcher, is this meat halal? Prove to me that this meat is not halal. I, I need to know. That's not the way we're supposed to be. And even to the extent when you go out to dinner to, an, to the place of an unbeliever, now, in Paul's culture, an unbeliever, we're talking about a pagan, somebody who worships other gods. So let's put it into the context of today's discussion. If a Muslim family invites you to come and have dinner with them, sit down and eat that dinner. And don't raise any questions about it. Don't say to them, now, sorry, before I eat, I just need to know, is this, is this meat halal? If it is, I can't eat it. Um, in fact, Paul says to not give offence. And so we can eat meat that is halal. But there's also a time when we shouldn't. Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? All right, so in the supermarket, sometimes meat will be distinctly marketed as being halal. Sometimes I'll have a special compartment in the fridge and a big sign on it, halal. Well, obviously we wouldn't go and shop from that section, would we? Sometimes the meat will be packaged with a very prominent symbol on it, promoting it as being halal on the packaging. Now, what does that symbol tell us? That symbol is telling us that this piece of meat has been killed in the name of Allah. Would you still eat it? Hmm. Yes, we are free to eat an animal if it's been killed in the name of Allah. But not if they're making a thing about it. Not if they're saying, oh, this was killed for this God. If I buy the distinctly halal meat from the supermarket and Joe Blow sees me doing it, and what is that telling Joe Blow? 
oh, these Christians don't have a problem with Allah. It's, it's all the same. And so for the sake of the conscience of the other, we are not free to eat meat if it's being promoted as being halal. What's the principle at play here? Back in chapter 8, we learned about how love limits liberty. Today, we're learning the principle of doing everything for the glory of God. Verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. Here we're catching a glimpse of Paul's heart. And it's the very heart of the gospel. Everything we do, we do to the glory of God. We do so that God is glorified. But how is God glorified? I'll tell you how he doesn't get glorified. God doesn't get glorified if we go around unnecessarily offending everybody by telling everybody everything that we're against. I've become pretty convinced that the world will not be evangelised and God's kingdom will not grow by us waging some kind of modern-day crusade against people of other religions. Our witness to the community is simply to abstain. We abstain from participating in their worship of, our, of idols and demons. In the case of halal meat, our witness is to abstain from eating this product when it's being promoted as an animal that's been killed in the name of Allah. That's our witness. Personal abstinence in the face of general acceptance. Our aim to glorify God in everything that we do in the hope that many will be saved by our simple witness. Some people get it so wrong. In the name of God, they become a people who are known as being against everything. You know, oh, you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't eat this and you can't drink that. That's not how God has called us to live. So much in all of this, what we've been hearing is all about freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ. But we only give up our freedom for the sake of the other. By the blood of Jesus, we have freedom and liberty. And out of our love for others, we share the good news of Jesus. If we become a people of offence, if we become a stench in the nostrils of ordinary old Joe Blow and the community, they're not going to hear the gospel. All they're going to hear is legality and not the gospel of grace. And so by the way that we conduct ourselves... We give God glory. Now that's the two questions answered and we've probably gone on long enough. But I, I did just want to give you one more example quickly about how I apply this passage with stuff I've dealt with. Another way I apply this principle is when it comes to biodynamic produce. Is anyone familiar with the term biodynamic farming? Put up your hand if you've heard of biodynamic farming. Three of us, four of us, okay. Um, now, biodynamic farming practices are generally promoted as being similar to organic. 
they are not. I want you to understand this very clearly. Biodynamic farming practices have nothing to do with organics, although sometimes you'll find it mixed into an organic system. Biodynamic farming is very much tied up in the spiritual realm, and I would actually call it witchcraft. Um, and I've had a bit of experience in this when I used to work at the Ag College. Um, there was a chap there who actually got a government grant to put a biodynamic farming um, demonstration area at the college. And so I had a fair bit of, to deal with this and to try and shut it down. Now, if anybody wants to know more about it, just talk to us afterwards. We don't need to go into ins and outs of what it is. But one time, I was looking for, to buy non-alcoholic wine for communion. And I wanted to buy a still non-alcoholic wine. It's pretty easy to buy sparkling non-alcoholic wines and stuff. It's just like fizzy grape juice, isn't it? Um, but for communion, I was looking for a still wine. And we used to be able to buy it. And I started searching on the internet for where I could buy it from. And once I started looking at that, I realised that even the stuff that we'd been using um, was now being marketed as being biodynamic. Um, and... Is it a sin for us to eat or drink biodynamic produce? Well, using this passage, I don't believe that it is. But if it is being marketed as biodynamic and biodynamic principles are rooted in paganism and Eastern mysticism and in the spiritual realm, if it's being marketed as biodynamic, I don't think we should be buying it. Um, and it really came home to me because I was considering communion wine at the time. And, I, and this Bible reading came straight to my mind. We cannot share the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And that's exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for the communion wine. And it's actually promoting um, other spiritual things to produce it. So we didn't buy that wine. But who'd have thought that we'd have so much to think about when it comes to meat offered to idols? in our modern society here in Australia in 2018. Let's pray, hey. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you for the freedom that we have in your name. Lord, I want to thank you for, for the liberty that we have. I want to thank you that greater, the, the truth of the fact that greater is he who is in us than he who is in this world. I want to thank you, Lord, that there is only one true God and you are that God. And, Lord, we give to you our full allegiance. We give to you our full love and we give to you our very being. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people who give you glory in everything we do, whether it be even in what we eat and what we drink and what we buy from the supermarket, in our conversations that everything that we do would be for the glory of God. And Lord, in this, this world, for us, it's changing. It's changing a lot. And we're starting to have to actually start to consider things that we've never had to consider before. Lord, I just ask that you would give us wisdom, that we would be able to live as your faithful children, um, giving you honour and giving you glory even in decisions about eating meat that may have been sacrificed to another god. 
And Lord, as we see our world changing and not for the better, Lord, our prayer is that which you have taught us to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on this earth as in heaven. We pray, come Lord Jesus, keep us faithful to you to the end. And we long for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.